Welcome to 30 Minutes from 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Shocker. My guest today is Cam Juarez. Cam Juarez was born to migrant farm worker parents in Yuma, Arizona. He's a founding member of the Arizona Cesar E. Chavez Holiday Coalition, and he was chair of the coalition when it became a citywide holiday. He joined the National Park Service in January 2016, where he serves as the Community Engagement and Outreach Coordinator and Public Information Officer for Saguaro National Park. And he also sits on the park's leadership team there. Today, we continue with part two of a two-part conversation. So one of the other programs that we do is is uh, love of reading. You know, we we do a lot of it in February, and we bring in you know uh, volunteers to do it, and some of our interns do it. Uh, we have a whole unit in the interpretation division. They're called the environmental education uh, program. You know, they're the ones who really have been holding down the fort for all these years. Because when you talk to um, Latinos or people of color in in, in Tucson, you ask them, have you ever been to Saguaro National Park? wow, maybe in, in the late 80s, early 90s, when I was in elementary school, you know, I went on a field trip. And if they say that, it was likely because of folks like, uh, you know, Chip Littlefield, who, who is currently getting ready to retire. And we're, we're all a little nervous because a lot of in, institutional knowledge is, is going with them. You know, so that's the other thing, you know, the park, a lot of folks are, are starting to look at retirement. And so there's um, not just a mass exodus, but also you know, a lot of folks coming into the park um, and and uh, our volunteer base looks different as well. We don't have as many baby boomers uh, as we used to. Now we have, you know, more folks that are close to my age and your age, you know. So if you want to volunteer, Amanda, we're always looking for some some great, uh, you know, VIPs to come join us. And, and we call our volunteers uh, volunteers in parks or, or VIPs and get that out. I don't know. I'm just recruiting always, you know, so. But yeah, like I said, we, we do a lot of stuff. You know, our books that I was talking about earlier, it gives me this, this entry into the classroom. And then I talk to kids about the Every Fourth Grader Outdoors program. And it's, a, it's another pass that we give to fourth graders. And their, their family, whoever's in the vehicle with them, can get into the park for free. So that's parks, uh, national uh, waterways, you know, uh, Lake Mead. You know, they go up there for, you know, spring break or whatever. Um, Grand Canyon, you know, they get into all these places and, and some of these fees now are, are getting up there. Um, you know, our senior pass was $10, $10 for decades and, and then all of a sudden it went up to $80. And, you know, the park has a lot of unfunded needs and, and uh, every administration is uh, is tasked with trying to find the funds to take care of our parks. I and mean, we have a lot of infrastructure that needs some some TLC and, and we definitely have parking lots that are way smaller for the number of people that we see. You know, last year, we saw over a million visitors, even though we were in COVID. I mean, those are some of the estimates. I, I'm not sure what it was because we didn't have any counters going. But the year before, we definitely hit over a million visitors uh, at Saguaro National Park. So we've, we've got a lot of cool stuff happening. And, and a lot of people around the country are looking to us uh, for some of that leadership. And, and, uh, and we're, we're, we're happy to give it, you know, whenever we can. I, I, I talk to maybe a dozen rangers every few months uh, about the, the work that we're doing here. Um, and there's a lot of interest in, you know, not just protecting our, our saguaros, our iconic saguaros, but also about how do we engage audiences that aren't coming to the park so far. So yeah, it's, it's, it's good work. I'm, I'm happy to do it. Um, and like I said, it's, it's my identity. It's, it's, it's who I am. And, 
um, and you know I, I travel you know when we were traveling and I travel all over the place I don't know how but it, me being a park ranger almost always gets into the conversations and then that opens a whole bunch of other stuff you know but anyway um, you know the stuff I learned uh, being a, a farm worker kid and then being a student activist and then being uh, a member of the coalition of the Chavez coalition uh, and then being mentored by people like Dolores Huerta um, you know that um, that really has given me a different perspective you know I, I learned to become an environmentalist and it wasn't because I wanted to keep these places pristine it was because of the impact the environmental impact environmental pollution environmental racism had on communities of color on lower income communities and so I'm an environmentalist for all of those reasons I want to I want to hug those trees but I also want to hug the people that are being you know displaced by uh, some of the environmental stuff that's happening you know whether that's climate change or mines, or I mean, I don't want to get too political because you know I'm, I'm I'm wearing the hat literally, but it is stuff that's important to me, you know. And and climate change, um, that wasn't a conversation we were having a lot the last four years, and now it's definitely a conversation that we're 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 being um, encouraged to have. It's it's science, you know, and it's not like a political thing for us. It's it's science, and we're talking about it because it's having an impact on our plants and the things that we protect. Not to mention the people. And making it so local, too, to this region makes it meaningful. I know a lot of times there are efforts, perhaps, to engage young people in, in climate conversations. I'm sure there's tons of them. But, you know, sometimes it's about the polar bears or the penguins and not maybe what's right in their own backyard. Absolutely. And, and it's difficult to put those things in the context for some of these kids. I mean, some of these kids haven't even seen a polar bear. Um, you know, even on screen, some people are Googling other stuff, but, um, you know, um, I just lost a friend a couple, couple of days ago. A lot of us lost this friend. He, he was uh, uh, employed at, at Pima uh, County as, as the deputy director of community services. And, and, and Danny never smoked, uh, but Danny died of throat and lung cancer. You know, Richard, you know, Elias, who passed away, you know, talked about, you know, the impact of TCE, you know, and, and, and water usage in, in our community. You know, and, and he talked about a lot of things. They, Danny, uh, like I said, was not a smoker and he died of, you know, I, I presume some of those ties, right? I mean, he had been in Tucson all his life. His family had been here for a long time. It's easy to imagine that that might have had a, an impact on, on, on the cancer that ultimately killed him. Um, and so when I talk with kids at, at schools or community events or presentations that I give, the connection to environment sometimes is is kind of a bummer, you know, where I talk, you know, I ask the question, how many of you know somebody or have lost someone close to you uh, due to cancer or other environmental issues? And everybody in the room raises their hand. And so when I start talking about air quality and I start talking about the lack of rain, uh, which directly impacts our air quality, I mean, the amount of dust and pollen in the air because we don't have rain to kind of sell that stuff down it's impressive how people immediately their ears perk up and all of a sudden i'm giving you know a talk that was supposed to be 20 minutes on this an hour and a half later and we're still engaged in the conversation and a lot of kids are asking questions and talking about how their you know the or their nina or somebody died because of cancer and, and so if that's the spark that gets them interested in understanding and, and even becoming passionate about um, you know, uh, the environment. My, my internal professional goal is to go in 
to a five second conversation uh, or even a connection and, and, and turn that into a five minute conversation that maybe goes into, you know, five years of volunteering with me. And ultimately it turns them into an environmental steward. That's my goal. It's not just about you know, the MPS mission. It's about making this a better place. I think every job I've had prior to this one has been about making this place a better place because it was hard for me growing up. I, and growing up with a kid with disabilities and having spent all the time I spent in hospitals, it was hard on me. And it was hard to be you know, bullied and made fun of and, and all that other stuff, but also not being able to join kids to, to play soccer because my heart rate was so irregular that I would pass out on the field. You know, all those impacts that I had growing up you know, some of those impacted my son. You know, my, my kid had heart surgery at nine weeks uh, and multiple surgeries thereafter. And thank God he's okay now. But that impacted who he is. And, and as a parent, that made me angry about the negative impacts uh, on our environment. So, like I said, I talk about it from a personal perspective, uh, both as a farm worker kid, but also as a kid who grew up to become an environmentalist. And so while I didn't think I would ever be a park ranger, I kind of think it was, you know, it was fate, you know, I, I would end up in this, in this field. And I hope that, you know, I, I can, I can grow to be, you know, the park ranger that the park service needs me to be, but I also want to be the park ranger that our community needs me to be, you know, and I, and I want to be able to find that happy marriage. Uh, and while it's not always easy, I'm grateful to the people at the park who, who support me in doing this and, and, and who allow me to get creative uh, about how I approach people. But Finding the connections, that's that's the main thing I do, is finding how to connect the dots and how to make it relevant to people. And that that is, you know, a big part of, of my job. And, and I, I want to make sure that all of our park rangers can develop that skill set, you know, not just at our park, but across across the service. Uh, because if we can find ways to connect, I'm sure a lot of them already do, but if we can find more meaningful ways to connect with our audiences, diverse or traditional. I think you know we can we can you know change the way we do things and and, and create more spaces. Uh, my dream, honestly, is to see more uh, national park sites continue to grow, and they don't have to be huge because they're hard to maintain. You know, I, I'm, I'm recognizing that. I would love to see a Dolores Huerta national monument in New Mexico to honor Dolores. You know, uh, I would love to see uh, more indigenous people honored. You know, for for the history and the traditions. You know, I. I would love to see more ways to talk about traditional foods and how they help us fight diabetes, obesity, and you know, and, and heart disease. I mean, those things are, are great if we can tell them, but we have to tell everyone's stories. We have to talk about the transgender youth and how some of those folks are having impacts uh, on the way we do things, on public policy. We have to talk about kids who are blind, who may not be able to see Yosemite, but may, might be able to really find a way to explain what a cactus feels like to other kids who, who might not have the ability to see. So we, if we're going to say we're going to tell everyone's stories and this is everyone's public land, then we have to be true to that and we have to be as inclusive as we can. And, and that's what I hope to do. And, uh, and so that's what I learned from Cesar, you know, and, and from Dolores. And, you know, Dolores would say, honor the hands that harvest your crops. And she was talking not just about the Mexican-American farm workers. She was talking about the Filipino workers. Uh, she was talking about the Japanese workers and she was talking about everybody else. Uh, she was talking about the Oklahoma uh, migrants that had come you know, to the West because you know, they, they, they were in the Dust Bowl 
Um, and so she was inclusive about those people and she wasn't trying to define different people for different things. But when you have policies uh, the, like the, the 1965 National uh, Labor Relations Act that specifically excluded farm workers and, and domestic workers. And those workers were predominantly people of color, people that had been marginalized. Prevented them from uh, receiving social security. Exactly. And, and they, were, they, they weren't able to unionize the protections that other workers got um, you know, you were talking, you know, after the 1930s and the Industrial Revolution and all that, where you had entire groups of people being burnt in factories because there was no safety protocols put in place. So farm workers and, 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 um, and domestic workers were not protected when everybody else was in 1965. And that, that, that wasn't a good thing. And, and so Cesar and Dolores, you know, when they started working together in the early 60s and ultimately got to say in 1965, you know, we're going to join the Filipinos and strike and use our power to persuade, you know, the American populace to stop eating grapes. That was their goal. 18 million people around the world stopped eating grapes because they want, that was the only ammunition they had. And so uh, it, it's important to recognize that while Cesar Chavez is the icon, Dolores Huerta did just as much work. And, you know, even the idea of Si se puede was uh, Cesar's saying, it was Dolores' saying. And President Obama proved that when he gave her the Medal of Freedom and said, yeah, you know that thing where I was saying, yes, we can? Well, I kind of borrowed that from Dolores and I want to give her credit for it right here, right now. You know, So that's, that's the kind of thing I think is, is important to talk about. But you know, the, the violation of their civil rights, not being able to say the word huelga or strike and they would get thrown in jail for saying that, that's First Amendment rights. The strategy that they used to bring attention, you know, national attention, uh, and, and to do a 300-some-mile walk from Delano to Sacramento. And when they were told they were denied permits for, for, for this march, they said, okay, we're going to make it a religious pilgrimage. You can't deny us our, 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 our freedom of religion. This country was founded on that. That was super smart. And they did it that way. They, they were innovative in how they did it. Um, you know, Cesar got a lot of attention because of what he sacrificed most, and that was his body. The um, boycott, you know, really kind of came on the heels of that, where, where the anti-violence um, movement and, and, the, and the, the idea of being nonviolent in their protests, I mean, it, that was being challenged because three years into the strike, they weren't getting anywhere. And the workers were starting to get, you know, more along the lines of like, you know what, we're going to fight back. And he said, I'm going to sacrifice my body and fast. He didn't know how long it was going to be, and it ended up being 25 days. But he did that. He got the attention not just of his workers uh, and his and his fellow union members, but of the entire nation. You know, he he got in '69. He got on July 4th. He got the cover of Time magazine. And so I mean that's important. But the Lord is where the hell down the fort the entire time that that Cesar uh, was fasting. You know, and he did it again in 1988. And the Lord is at that point wasn't really involved with, with the union anymore. But they were still supportive of of Cesar. You know, when when that happened, and she came back and. She participated in the campaign to attention to the fact that farm worker kids were being born just like me with different arms and, you know, and, and heart problems and all kinds of other medical issues. And he did that because, you know, they called it the fast for life. And he did that because he knew that kids, farm worker kids specifically, or kids living near farms were being impacted by, you know, the, the drift, as they called it, where the pesticides and the herbicides 
were were spreading to places they weren't supposed to go to and they impacted workers workers got sick and they were born with a bunch of medical problems so you know you fast forward from me being born in 72 to my son being born in 2009 and he's still being impacted by the decision by by growers to use herbicides and pesticides uh, it's in, it's important to talk about that because that that impassions people and it, they're like how could they do that that's so unjust and so it's it's things like that that i think um, make me an effective um, trainer on and, and, and speaker on this issue because it's personal. You know, I, I got to know Richard Chavez, who designed the United Farm Worker flag and was Cesar's brother and ultimately built Cesar's coffin when Cesar passed away in 93. Um, and he was also, you know, Dolores's partner. And they have, you know, kids that grew up to do really important things. So when I see streets being named after him and I see statues being, you know, put up in different places, I mean, we just got that new statue in Five Points. Um, I really wish that we had a better place for that, but I understand that that's where we, what we had and what, what we ended up dealing with, right? And it's good, we have it, we have to look on that side. And the fact that we have a tiny little park in that area too, I would love to have a bigger park, but I understand, you know, that takes resources. But when we got the university, to change the name of the economics building. I was part of that. You know, when, when we got to look at that bridge and inaugurate that bridge on, on Sixth Avenue, I was part of that too. And when we finally got the county holiday pass, that was great. I mean, it was a, it's an administrative holiday, right? Um, but when the city and, and under, you know, Regina Romero's as a city council member, her leadership, when that passed, and, that was, you know, I did that as, as the chairman of, of, of the organization. And man, I was I was writing our, our volunteers and our members really hard. I was like, we gotta do this, we gotta do this. And people were like, okay, it's important, but man, we're tired. And we're like, we can't be tired, we gotta keep going. Imagine those farm workers working all those hours in the field. You know, it's just like, it, it was it was um, a real beautiful thing to see that happen, you know? And, and so, you know, it just, it, it's inspiring to me to think of Cesar's quote, you know, uh, he's got so many, right? And so is the Lotus. But, and the one that I really just kind of love is once social change begins, it cannot be reversed. You cannot uneducate the person who has learned to read. You cannot humiliate the person who feels pride. You cannot oppress the people who are not afraid anymore. I mean, that speaks to so many people in so many intersections in our community. You know, whether you're a member of the LGBTQ plus community or whether you're a disabled person fighting for your rights to get that COVID shot you know, to, to get the vaccine. And it's just, I cannot believe how people still have to fight for their rights. I mean, we see a lot of, you know, legislation being put up right now that really is looking to reverse some of those things that Dr. King and, you know, and Robert Kennedy were, were pushing to change and, you know, the Civil Rights Act and, and the voter stuff that was happening. There's some people in this country that are looking to reverse that. My guest today is Cam Juarez, and he's a community engagement and outreach coordinator and public information officer for Saguaro National Park. We cannot go back, you know, and, and history tells us that, that, that it's not a good idea. And so, you know, talking about civil rights uh, within the Park Service is probably one of my other favorite things to do, but um, I'm I'm uh, I'm lucky. I'm I'm uh, I'm passionate about that work, but you know I'm also really cognizant that I got to bring people to the table as opposed to um, being so offensive in what I say because I'm so angry. That um, and 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 let's let's not kid ourselves. I'm usually really 
angry and I grew up angry. I mean, I've got seven fingers, no thumbs. I've, I, I mean, my arms are pretty, you know, messed up as some people have seen it. I don't see it that way anymore. My loved ones don't see me that way. But people in, in, in the general public, I am never allowed to forget that I am different. And, and that's at the grocery store. That's me walking through Lowe's uh, or, you know, one of those stores or anytime I go out in public, I regularly see that look in people's eyes and they stare at me and I, I'm, I'm, I'm offended by it. I'm offended by it and I'm angry about it all the time, but I, I just don't have time um, to be upset and, and, to, and to do that. I'd rather put my energy uh, kind of like, you know, what Dr. King said, you know, uh, I choose love, you know, instead of hate. And, uh, and that's been, you know, like, I hope that gets to be my legacy, you know, is that, that people will remember that, um, that I chose love and I chose to, to be inclusive of people and not say, you know, you don't belong here because you don't look like me. A lot of people don't look like me. The other quote that Cesar had that I really love is preservation of one's own culture does not require contempt or disrespect for other cultures. So, I mean, that saying right there, it does not require contempt or disrespect for other cultures. Um, you know, Benito Juarez was, was a Mexican president and a hero of the Mexican Revolution, too. And he had a saying, el derecho al respeto ajeno es la paz. When you respect others, you'll have peace, you know. And so we have different opinions. We have different, you know, ideologies. But the last four years have been really hard on people because there was so much uh, vitriol and there was so much division in our, in our country. And I hope that we can overcome that. And I hope that we can remember that we all have a place here, you know. I'll probably close out with this, Amanda. So my mom, you know, as I mentioned before, you know, I, I had a brother-in-law that wasn't Latino or, or Mexican-American or, or a Mexican descent. In fact, when my sisters went to college, they started coming home with boyfriends that didn't look like us at all. And, you know, and Phil ended up being, you know, a boyfriend, but Doug and Jeff ended up being husbands and brother-in-laws and my mom's sons, you know, and, and, uh, and we have Tom, you know, uh, and and they're they're not of Mexican descent, but they're family members. But when they started pulling up to our house in San Luis, where we were a mile from the border, and 99% of the population was of Mexican descent, if not Mexican, people started asking. You know, it was like people can be xenophobic regardless of what their social uh, or or racial or ethnic background is, right? And so they're like, what's up with all the white people showing up at your house? You know, and my mom's like, look their family, you know, they're, 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 they're my son-in-laws and, 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 you know, there's, they're, they're not the white guys. They're Phil and Jeff and Tom and Doug, you know, they're family. So this lady kept bugging my mom and, you know, we had this, this tiny little kitchen, this tiny little dining area, but we all sat around that. We took turns, you know, during the holidays or at family get togethers to, to eat and shifts right around this little tiny table. And my mom said, you know, when this lady kept bugging her, it's like, Adela, what are you going to do? And my mom said, I'm going to buy a bigger kitchen table. And that's really what it comes down to is, is you're not trying to push people out or, or, or tell them that they're not welcome there anymore because you have to replace them with someone that doesn't look like them. The idea is that you create a bigger space. You invite people to the table. Their perspectives, their voices, their stories are present. But if you start excluding people, that's when you start creating these divisions. And so, um, you know, I don't know why people are so upset or, or, or so scared of change. Um, you know, if change is allowed to happen naturally, the park stories, for example, 
we'll, we'll, the more we tell them, the more people will become accustomed to them. And that is really what, what we should be about, regardless of what we do for a living, is allowing for people's stories. And, and sometimes those stories are going to be difficult. You know, you're, you're going to have the crazy uncles and the abusive dads or whatever, uh, you know, or the, or the aunts who just, you know, were always, you know, mad dogging, you know, the other aunts or whatever. But we have to be aware that those, those difficult things will get past them and ultimately will settle on the good things. And, and that's, you know, that's a human condition, I think, is, is we, we have to be like Dolores and Cesar, and we have to stand up for things that we see uh, are unjust. Um, and we have to be able to affect change. So one of the things I'm most proud about as a park ranger um, is, is being connected to, um, you know, King California and the Cesar Estrada Chavez uh, National Monument. It's where Cesar organized. It's uh, it's a real funny story how that came to be. Um, essentially, there's discrimination. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. And they were trying to buy, you know, what what some of the, the members' dues. You know, they they had some money available to them at the, at the height of their organization, and they wanted to buy a property that was large enough to serve as a training uh, for other organizers and other, uh, you know, union folks. And so they found this beautiful ranch uh, that wasn't really a ranch. It was actually a, a mental health hospital. Um, and it had been abandoned for years and they were really trying to get this hospital and it wasn't happening. Um, and um, you know, the, the people who owned the property didn't want to sell it to you know, folks that had been deemed to be communists, to be enemies of ranchers. And this was a lot of ranch land around there. And so uh, they ended up uh, talking with this, um, uh, Hollywood, you know, you know, bigwig who was a producer, and he made an offer on the hospital, and he got it right away. And so he donated that hospital right back to the, the United Farm Workers Union, you know. And and so UFW got what is called uh, known as 40 acres or La Paz, and that is uh, now the monument. And uh, on the facility is Cesar's, you know, very humble home, and where he shared with his wife. Um, his burial plot, where Cesar is buried, where his wife is buried, uh, and their two dogs, you know, uh, Boycott and uh, Huelga, are the two German shepherds that were basically with Cesar for a long time, and so they're buried there on site as well. The visitor center is beautiful, but that um, reminds me of a conversation I had with the superintendent of that place a couple of days ago. So I called him and I was like, hey man, I'm, you know, busy in March as usual. I'm telling the story. I, I need to kind of check in with you. I want to I want to see how you are with COVID. And of course, their visitor center is closed, but people are welcome to walk the grounds. And um, he's finally got some staff to help support him. You know, didn't have a lot of staff. It's in the middle of, of nowhere, right? And he was telling me, uh, you know, about, you know, what was going on. I was like, okay, Ruben, I got to ask, man. His, his name is Superintendent Ruben Andrade. You got to tell me how it happened. And he goes, how what happened? I'm like, so I'm sitting there on inauguration day and I'm watching, you know, coverage of, 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 the new president, President Biden, um, you know, signing all these executive orders. And in the back and in social media, I start seeing this whole thing about the Cesar Chavez bust uh, right behind the Resolute desk in the Oval Office. And apparently when Biden came in, he changed some stuff in the White House, in the Oval Office, I should say, specifically. And it made all these social media networks, right? It was like blowing up on social media. And they're like, Cesar Chavez's bust is uh, you know, right next to the, the Resolute, that's right behind President Biden. And we're like going bananas. And I'm like, it was, a, it was a statement that said, you know, we're gonna respect the Latino community. But more importantly, 
he talked about someone who is an icon for a lot of us, right? As organizers, as, as regardless of our, our racial or ethnic background, but also as, as union people and as, as workers, right? This is a country of workers. It said a lot when we saw that. And so I said, tell me, you know, how did that happen? And he goes, man, you know, I was on leave for a few days. It was after the holidays. And I got a call, you know, from, from our, our DC office and basically said, hey, uh, the president-elect's uh, office wants to get a hold of you. And uh, so he came off a of leave and he went back, you know, to, to the monument, packed up this, this bus that I actually have touched. You know, when I visited, I actually had my hand on this thing that is now in the White House. And it was incredible. And it was, it's just, it's, it was quite an honor to be involved with that. And, and just, it's beautiful to know that, um, you know, that this administration respects not just that community, but respects the park service enough to say, we want to borrow some of your, um, your exhibits and, and have them in the White House. And, uh, and a couple other pretty prominent uh, you know, works of art uh, from, from national park sites uh, were, were temporarily moved to the Oval Office. So, Again, you know, the Park Service uh, is designed to tell America's stories. And um, I'm happy that that's one of them that, that's being told now. Pam Juarez, you are a great storyteller of the park stories and, and of our history. And I'm really glad you could join us today. Well, thank you. I, I, um, I really appreciate the invitation. And uh, as always, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a real honor to be able to tell these stories. But, you know, people keep asking, you know, why do we keep talking about this legacy when he's, you know, he, he's passed, you know, a few decades ago. Um, and um, the reason why it's so important is because farm workers are still essential workers and they're still not being treated uh, the way they should be. You know, they're, they're artisans and, and they're craftsmen uh, and there are so many things and, and we just still don't uh, pay the respect to the people that are uh, harvesting, you know, taking care of our crops and harvesting those crops for not just us here in the states but for millions and millions of people around the world and so i think it's important to tell the story because every one of those people is dolores huerta and cesar chavez and so and all the other union you know folks in, in 60s and 70s that stood up for folks that were being treated um really really bad and and uh, and i think that's why telling this story is still so relevant and so important We'll have to leave it there. You've been listening to 30 Minutes from 91.3 KXCI Tucson. Our guest today was Cam Juarez. He was born to migrant farm worker parents in Yuma, Arizona. He's a founding member of the Arizona Cesar E. Chavez Holiday Coalition. He joined the Park Service in January 2016 where he's now the Community Engagement and Outreach Coordinator and Public Information Officer for Saguaro National Park, where he serves on the park's leadership team. This has been part two of a two-part series. You can find this and all recent episodes of 30 Minutes on the 30 Minutes program page at kxci.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Amanda Shager.